Hey everybody, welcome back to The Collective. We have another fantastic show that we got planned out for you here today, but who knows what happens because, you know, the uh, first casualty in anything is the plan. So <laughs> the uh, first thing I want to do mention before we go anywhere else is the fact that you should like and subscribe and hit the notification bells because every day when we do this, you should get a little email. It pops up. It's on my phone right now. It says, hey, The Collective's live. You should be watching. So make sure you do that um before we get too far uh into it any guy uh, you guys got any thoughts first off ed thanks for joining us and thanks for having me uh no problem any any thoughts anything on the top of your head any questions any discussion points that perhaps you thought of while we were talking earlier doesn't it seem that back in the day winter was just this regular thing and now it's this large event that everybody is very concerned about like I, I just, I just plowed my driveway like three times over the last uh, couple of days, and I was like, "Yeah, this feels like what I remember from growing up." Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought about that at all, but it is. It's a, uh, it's kind of a production now. You hear about it on the interwebs and the TV, and everybody's freaking out about like three inches of snow versus. Oh, if you want to get your freak out. Come and live in Roslyn, where we got like about 20 CMs just the other day, nearly every day, et cetera. Like my driveway is a disaster. And uh, yeah, you know, it's just part of winter, baby. <laughs> you know what I remember, actually, this is a, a bit of a side story here, but trying to shovel gravel sucks. <laughs> in case anybody's ever dropped everybody wondering about that. Uh, if you have a paved driveway... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good yep. to go. <laughs> no, no, mine's mine's gravel in the front, gravel in the back. And mm. so we always in the wintertime, we establish that base first. You know that base, pack mm -hmm. that thing down, let her freeze, gets the little divots in it so that the vehicles don't just slide and can't stop. Then we let winter build up on top of it. Mm, yeah, we kind of do the same thing in our driveway out here. <clears throat> We've got a um concrete driveway and then on either side of the driveway we have uh river rock not river rock gravel that is kind of river rockish and that's because we have um, some drainage tubes underneath so all around our foundation of our house everything's getting drained away because we get so much freaking snow so we let all of that to your point ed on either side of the driveway if i if i don't have a snow blower and i've never owned one but if we're shoveling, I need there to be some snow that's got pretty solidified so that my boys, who I try to get to do most of the shoveling, ain't shoveling rocks yeah. on either side yeah. of the driveway. Yep. Nothing quite like losing your driveway every winter as you get as you shovel it off to the side. Right. Correct. <laughs> right. Particularly since I know how much that rock cost. It is expensive. You you know, I never realized never realized how much rock costs until you go to buy rocks. And you're like, really? Until you're building a house. Until you're building a house or laying a driveway or trying to pave something or try to get aggregate to fill in for a foundation or whatever. It's uh it can be quite well, a show. I mean, we go we, we go in the woods, we go in the middle of nowhere and rocks everywhere. And so you get this idea that like it's free. But um, if if you've ever known anybody who operates a, a rock quarry or a rock pit, the the taxes, like the the cost of doing business just to own that, is extremely high. Yeah. You know, like like they they pay out the butt in order to just operate it. And so 
when we go to go to purchase it for sure there's you know there's i mean we could all just take big trailers go out in the woods load them up and then you know bring all the gravel back um, and, and then spent hours and hours and hours smashing rock into smaller and smaller pieces. <laughs> and then I had yeah, we the... pay for convenience, that's for sure. Oh that's yeah, right. We do pay for convenience, and I think everyone needs to shake their head a little bit and re-remember that business is supposed to be a win-win. Yeah. Yep. So the customer gets what they want, and the business gets what it needs, and yeah. everyone carries on nodding yeah. at each other and saying thanks for the win-win proposition from both parties yep. you know i was actually exposed to this pretty uh pretty late in life at least in my my point of view uh, i didn't see a mill working like a like one of those um portable mills that you can just pick up and well you can pull it behind a truck and then set up and you can start cutting logs with the uh, portable mill i didn't see that until i was in the army and i saw it once and i was like oh oh and you kind of all of a sudden realize <laughs> take the two by four for, <laughs> like oh i cut that down and then i could get my own wood yeah. be great. Yeah. it is a, what do you mean seven dollars for a two by four that's insane well go ahead and make one and tell yeah. me how many how many days it takes you and then you know like i had i had 13 dump truck loads of of pit run gravel come to you know establish a nice flat spot to park a tractor yeah. and within a day 13 loads of gravel were put down on the on the ground like they were brought here and it was i think it was 700 dollars or something and it's like how long would that take me and my truck and my tractor to affect that no it's definitely yeah. worth the price oh you'd right? still be out there yeah still yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right and so and so like um this this idea that small business is somehow bad and out to screw people is it's ludicrous small business interconnects in the most sort of symbiotic way and everybody gets raised up i, th I think it's a, a wonderful thing when you can do that because it was like it was the the guy with the rock pit you know four minutes from me who got that contract because he he lives close and he does a good job right and and so you know we we got something we needed he got something he needed and now two years later here he's being shouted out on youtube doesn't even know it but somebody else who knows me might contact me afterwards be oh you got a rock guy cool who is he right yeah. and and so the like the interconnectivity uh that small business brings to just about every aspect of life is is something that like entrepreneurship is something we're really big on around here we think it's it's great i i just yeah. finished a podcast um the uh I can't remember the name of it right now, but they were talking about um, the Appala the Appalachian area down the states, and in the early nineteenth century, early twentieth century, um, kind of just before World War One, before coal mining became kind of the thing in that area. So I guess the late nineteen hundreds as well, or late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, um, that most of the people at a certain point were sustenance farmers. But they all worked together, all the little towns, all the little communities. And so it was basically every person was their own small business and rarely was actual currency used. It was barters and trades and, oh, I got an extra. I have more cows than the person down the street, but they have more chickens. So I trade them milk for eggs. And it's a similar thing that we're talking about now is that uh, I've been saying in the last little while that we've, we're entering into kind of a new cottage economy in that we can get stuff anywhere in the world we can get stuff from anywhere in the world and get stuff to anywhere in the world and so we can engage in it to 
to your point, we can engage in an interconnectivity that we never had access to beforehand. Right. I think it's really cool. <laughs> I think and, that's pretty awesome. And and like to your point on currency, um, two things. First of all, currency is an affectation of a mercantile system, and that's it. It you know it it, it wasn't there, then it was there, and what happens in the future? Don't know. But humans are always going to interact and exchange time and energy in some fashion that is agreeable to both parties, right? Mm -hmm. And the the barter system that people talk about is nothing uh, other than exactly that. It's an exchange of human time and energy or or human output uh, in exchange for something else. Like if you talk about back in the early um, early 1900s, for example, you have a bunch of farms that are all around the same area. In most cases, they're not all growing exactly the same thing. Because, you know, if all the farms are growing potatoes, well, then these farmers can't exchange potatoes with each other because everyone's got potatoes. It made more sense for, you know, these people got the chickens and these people got the sheep and everyone's got a little bit of this and that, but everyone had their specialty, which was the exchangeable product. Um, mm -hmm. Produce, right? Like we think about for vegetables comes from the word product. <laughs> Good point. Um, any, uh, any thoughts on that, Sean, before we jump into our topic? Yeah, I just think that it's a fascinating subject. I don't know what we're actually talking about today. We could be talking about this or whatever. I never know what the subjects are most of the time. So on this point, I'll say this. There's a lot of Canadians out there that are currently unhappy with the cost of things. Mm -hmm. I know myself, I'm unhappy with the cost of things. We went out, we don't eat out much. But we went out for dinner just uh, a couple of nights ago, and it was an expensive meal, really mm -hmm. expensive. And as I, as we were paying for that, all I could think of was, man, we can't do this a lot. We can afford to do it, but I, in my head, I don't want to afford to do it. So what does that even mean? It means that I value a dollar, so... I understand how to save. I also understand that there's businesses out there that need to keep on businessing. And I understand that because I've been a freaking entrepreneur for over two decades. I haven't worked for anyone but myself for a long, long time. So I know what it costs. I know what the resource burn rate is for various businesses. And I understand how difficult it is out there. At the same time, that doesn't mean that I'm I'm a blank check or a I'm going to pay everything all the time, no matter the cost. There has to be a line in the sand. And it comes down to this, the wants and needs. And then as soon as you look at wants and needs, if it's a, if it's a want, well, now I'm looking at the person in front of me. Do I need to do business with them? Or do I need to do business with that guy down the street? Mm -hmm. Who do I do my business with? That relationship is determined by if they're cool or not. And they're usually not cool if they haven't been in business long enough because they haven't learned all the hard lessons. If they've been in business for more than a decade, they've learned all the hard lessons, they've survived through the lessons, and they've found a way to flourish. Not maybe flourish, but operate in a growth pattern basis by doing good business through learning all the hard lessons. So I'll always give a nod to any small business or entrepreneur here in Canada, <clears throat> if they've been around for a while, 
if they've been in the game three days, if they're a flash in the pan, I'll I'll watch it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to do a song and dance on the street because they've been around for three days. It means I'll watch it and see where it goes. And if it's going in the right direction, then I'll support it because it needs to be a win for me and a win for them. That's a great point. And, you know, to to that point, I think being more thoughtful in how you spend your money or spend your time or spend your, because I mean that, as you said, Ed, the, you know, money is basically a representation of time in that I'm using my time to make money and therefore I use that money in exchange for something else. But if you, ha- if you stop and actually think about what you're doing with it, rather than just being flippant, like, Oh, eggs are expensive. Great. And then going buying a bunch of eggs from the same place that you always buy eggs that are just expensive and you're not, you know, very surface level thought of it rather than going deeper into it goes like, why is it so expensive? And do I know anybody with a farm? Do I know anybody that owns chickens? Maybe I could buy chickens from, you know, my next door neighbor or my, the guy who lives down the street who happens to have a chicken coop and he could probably use an extra couple of bucks and I could use some eggs. And I think that or, comes. Um, if, if eggs are expensive and we're like, Hey, we're in a world where, Eggs are up 180%. Well, it doesn't make any sense to buy the cheapest, runniest, you know, shittiest yolk eggs that you can find in the store. It makes sense to, if we're going to get eggs and they're expensive everywhere, let's get the ones that are the highest quality because we got to pay the price anyways. So we get the best return for our investment. Um, and to your point, the the farm the farm grown eggs, uh, typically speaking, are going to be of a much higher quality than the ones that we're going to buy in Costco. Sorry, Costco, but it is what it is, right? Agreed. However, the alternative to all of that is at some point someone can't afford the eggs, and then what? So you don't need eggs. No one needs eggs. You might want eggs. You might like eggs. You might like eggs with your bacon. Mm-hmm. But no one needs eggs. People need protein. People need good fats. People need a lot of macro and micronutrients. But it's not called egg. It's called <laughs> lots of other alternatives to yeah. eggs or eggs. No one should be target locked on, I need my eggs, no matter how much they cost. Yeah. So find an alternative protein and fat source for your morning breakfast or whatever the case is adapt to the situation i think this goes into again the the thinking about where your food comes from one of the one of the things i love about being a hunter is the fact that i know where my food came from i know exactly where it came from i, I put it down in that field over there right like <laughs> i know exactly where it came from i know where it's been i know where it grew up i know that the the, the meat itself is going to be clean and it's going to be tasty which it is and sean don't worry when i see you you'll be getting some uh some elk yeah right. ground elk don't worry i got you i got you don't worry <laughs> yeah. um and then this season i'll even get a deer tag specifically for you and make sure that time. you get some venison uh, but i think this it goes into the uh the idea of being self-sufficient right being able to think about what it is you want and what it is you need because both of those things like if if i want more meat in my diet but i don't want to go to the store and buy meat constantly then you know hunting is a pretty good 
allegory, but hunting is hard <laughs> and it takes a lot of time and work and effort. And then you got to learn how to either butcher or you got to pay somebody to butcher or you got to da 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 well, It's resources. It's a resource burn rate, time, money. That's what resources are. And we can add a bunch of other things to the definition of resources, but resources generally universally is accepted as time, money, your resource burn rate. And so your resource burn rate to go out and get a deer might cost you more than feeding your family with meat from the supermarket for the year. True. It all yeah. depends. It all depends on how you get your free con. If your idea of getting a deer is to rent a float plane to fly up into northern wherever with all of your Gucci Lululemon stuff, and now you're getting your Radmaster 9000 with all your brand new gear, you're $10,000 in yep. to the deer yep. for that year. Absolutely. And, and so and, wants needs. Yep. And if you don't understand the definition of what resources, time, money, well, start thinking about time, money, and how to use them more efficiently, more effectively, more wisely. Yeah. Ed, you got a point? I was agreeing vehemently uh, <laughs> with with Sean's point because the the truth is there are so many people who will get wrapped up in the activity. Like I'm I'm going hunting. I am a man. I'm a hunter. Didn't you know? Oh, you didn't know? Well, don't worry. I got a brand new Tika. I got a brand new quad, right? I had to get a new truck to put the new quad on. No problem. Of course. Yeah, that makes I'm sense. a hunter. Full <laughs> set of Sitkas, right? Away we go. Three days in the bush. Yep. Beautiful trophy buck. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, what you get? 150 pounds of meat off that? Yeah, but we had to split it up between the group, you know? Oh, okay, cool. So, you know, what'd you get? Well, you know, after the butcher was all done or whatever, there's there's about 35, 40 pounds of meat each. I feel pretty good about that. It's like, okay. And, and to be fair, that's probably 35 or 40 pounds of high quality, lean uh, protein. You know, yay for that. And if you have the money to spend, I don't begrudge anybody their choices uh, of how they, how they spend their money. That's, I mean, the basic tenets of freedom, right? You do you, I'll do me. Um but there are a lot of people who want to put on the affectation of hunting um, with with much, they put that at much higher prominence than like, I'm going to go out in my, you know, boots and sweatpants with a rifle and, you know, to the place where the animals are. And I'm going to sit there and wait till one of them walks past and then I'm going to shoot it. We're going to put it on a truck. We're going to drive it to the place. We're going to cut it up, you know, and my family gets to eat for the next six months uh, and we don't have to worry about it. That's, those are very, like diametrically opposed worlds of hunting. Both both accomplish the same thing, but to Sean's point, the output in one is significantly higher, and and what you get back out of it, um, I mean, you get the story, you get you get the tale, you get the experience. Th those are all real things, and they can be measured. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess what it really comes down to is, what's your goal? Like, what are what are we really doing here? Right? Are we are we uh, packing freezers full of meat because if we're packing freezers full of meat it might make sense to rent a helicopter or a float plane and go up to those places where nobody else is but the the moose abound right yeah. and and two or three giant bull moose between four or five families uh is a dramatic amount of meat and so there there are times when you can do it to a scale where it's like yeah no that that makes perfect sense but you know um I did, I did one entire year of hunting where I only, I only had one trip. It was, it was a limited entry hunt and all I got out of it was a mountain goat yeah. and uh, a mountain goat doesn't have a lot of meat on him. Right. And yeah. I had to walk up 
a mountain on, you know, go from 1,800 feet to 10,000 feet and hang out there for a bunch of time and, you know, shoot the dude in the storm and then go traverse down a mountain up another one to go get him and, and all the things. And what I really got out of that experience was the experience. Yeah. It wasn't food value. So there's something to be said for that. But, you know, if 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 you do get all rigged up and, and, and all this stuff and, and in the end you go to someone's field and shoot that deer because it's, you know, the end of it's the end of deer season and you got to get something. Um, yeah, there's an argument to be made that you could have used your time a bit better. Yeah. Well, do the math. Ten dollars a pound, we'll call it. That's three hundred fifty dollars sure. worth of food if you sure. get thirty five pounds. 350 bucks might, you know, I'd say to get to get that meat, to go out and get that meat, you might burn $350 worth of just gas. Yeah. To, never to get mind. Half a cow, that's like today. Never mind half everything else. And yeah. so the resource burn rate, the math doesn't make sense to go and get a deer. The math only makes sense if you're, if the, one of the outcomes is you got a deer and the other outcomes outweigh the 350 bucks that you're going to get in meat. The outcomes have to be to Ed's point, the experience. Yeah. They have to be the learning moments. You have to get to what you're doing is you're buying some life lessons. You're burning up resource to go learn to be better. And as an added bonus, you might actually get some meat that might yeah. be worth 350 bucks. So it ain't about the, there's a, there's a dialogue out there where hunters and rightfully so make the case that hunt one of the advantages to hunting is the meat and it's a fantastic outcome. I just don't think that that can be the only thing a person is seeking, particularly if they're new to the game, yeah. they should be seeking the experience not the meat. The meat is a maybe outcome. Focus on why you're there and it's to gain life lessons. Yeah, I was going to say there's a big difference between what it is you want. So if I want, if I just want meat, let's say, you know, uh, we, we go back in time and I just need meat. Well, I'm going to go walk around the forest where I know there's animals and I'm going to put one down and I'm going to bring home meat. I'm, I don't care about the trip. I don't care about the uh, uh, the rest of the stuff, the experiences. I'm just going for me. I'm going to get that, and I'm bringing it home, and then I'm going to cut it up, and then we're going to eat it. Done. Right? There, there's that mentality, as we talked about already. And there's also the mentality of going for a trip. And there's, you know, it's it's a broad spectrum in between those two things. But really is what it is that you want. Because when I go hunting, I go hunting as, A, I want to be able to provide for my family, but it the I'm not just going out there to get an animal. That's not my goal. My goal is to enjoy the time and you know be by myself for a while and go you know push myself up a hill or a mountain or walk around for four or five days or um, you know separate myself from the rest of the world for a little while because that's what the priority is that I want in those moments. Those are the lessons that I'm looking to learn. To your point, Sean, and. Uh, yeah, hunting is such an interesting one too because it's also uh, regulated, right? Like I have I have to go and I have to get 
tags. I have to have a license. I have to have a rifle. I have to have all these things in order to maintain the the level of animals and the conservation and all these things. And uh, again, it's whether or not you're getting something out of it. So I've been on hunting trips where I had to drive five hours in my truck with all my stuff just to get there, which is two tanks of gas, easy. And then I have to, and then I spent four or five days out there with all my food and all my stuff and never saw an animal five days in the bush, nothing came home empty handed another five hour trip. I spent a ton of money just getting there and I came home empty handed, but I came, I came home physically empty handed, I should say, <laughs> but I had a ton of lessons, right? I was recognizing where my failures were. I was like, Oh, I see. I didn't, I put absolutely no time into the prep of the land itself, right? I didn't go down and scout. I didn't know if there were animals in the area. I just kind of was like, yeah, there's been some here years ago. This should be fine. Ha <laughs> uh, ha. But again, if you're not looking for those lessons, then you're going to make those same mistakes and you're going to spend that same amount of money for... Well, there are some interesting things to tease out of that. So <clears throat> let's do a quick comparative. A couple hundred years ago, we'll call it just for sake of argument. Hunting was a necessity yeah. It wasn't a luxury. Hunting nowadays is a luxury and it's called a vacation. <laughs> now there is, there's a, don't get it twisted. All the hunters out there. I don't want a whole pile of Canadians to start driving straight to Roslyn to mob me. There is a small slice of Canadiana where it is necessary to hunt. Yeah. But that, that small slice is so razor thin that I can barely see it. The majority of hunting in Canada is a vacation. Yeah. Now, 200 years ago, it wasn't a vacation. It was a matter of survival. So 200 years ago, I'll tell you what did happen. People went out with a plan. Yeah. They didn't jump into the truck and hope. Because it's a vacation. Whatever. Maybe I'll get a deer. Maybe I won't. Whereas 200 years ago, it was... I better get a deer or we're all going to die. Yeah. And so resources were used a little more wisely based on the priority of surviving the year. Whereas nowadays, you're going to survive because if you don't get anything, you just go to your local supermarket and buy a can of spam or whatever. And presto changeo, you're looking forward to your next vacation that you don't give a whole lot of thought to because it's a vacation. If you redefine it as, I'm going out to hunt, I'm going to take it super serious, like my family depends on it, it's a matter of reprioritizing it, it's a matter of redefining it, it's a matter of using your resources better. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We got a quick comment from Patrick Grundle. Can I add the quality of the meat? Organic in nature is also a variable to consider along with the conservation factor. Yeah. And. We've, we talked about that, that, you know, the meat is fantastic and it is a big part of it, but at the same time, we, we can buy high quality organic meat at, uh, your local ranch. I know I could talk to my uncle and I could have, you know, uh, one of the calves that he raises, one of the cows, one of the cattle he raises that we can get a half one, no problem. Done. Easy peasy. Um, we so, do the same thing. Yeah. It's a, uh. An interesting point, but let's uh, let's dive into the actual topic at hand that I had what for the today. Heck? <laughs> We've been talking about all kinds of stuff so far, but it, it does play into it. And it actually goes along with what you're saying, Sean, is that the, the plan is really important because 
if you have no plan, it can be extremely stressful, right? You can, if you're just looking for an animal and you have absolutely no thought process into what that entails, uh, wandering around the woods can be extremely stressful, constantly looking for that animal that you're, you know, booty bashing through the woods that that animal is long gone before you even get there. And it takes a level of repetition before you can eliminate that stress to the point that you can start seeing those faults and start going, oh, maybe I shouldn't start hacking and slashing across the uh, the bush. <laughs> it's the same thing in any skill development, right? If you, when you first start, it's going to be stressful. And then you have to do it a whole bunch of times. I say this to my boys all the time. Everything is hard until you do it enough times that it becomes easy. But then you have to add stress to be able to do it under stress. <laughs> so I want to talk about the correlations between stress and repetition. What are your guys' uh, thoughts on that initially? We'll go with you, Ed. Um, I have uh, in life failed my way to success in just about every endeavor I've ever done. Um, I, I, I like a good quote from, I think the, the U.S. Army 1947 field man, FM 47, something like that. And I heard it on a Jocko podcast, so you can check that out on, on his. But uh, somewhere in there it says, the only true failure is death. Everything else is a learning opportunity. And uh, I currently hold 15 different industrial inspection certifications. I'm one of the most widely uh, certified guys in this country for sure, arguably in North America, in, in the fields that I'm in. And every one of those uh, certs has a federal or national level examination that comes with it. And you have to, you know, you redo them every three years. And I've had them for a long time. And without fail, just, well, with fail, just about every one of those exams, I failed the first go at many of them. And uh, to your point about stress and repetition, there's nothing that's so stressful as a uh, going to take a test, a big, hard, long test that's designed for you to fail at it, 90% uh, fail rate, first attempt in most cases, where your livelihood is at stake, your future is at stake, your ability to bring home the money is at stake. There's there's nothing like that to you know uh, allow a person to self-induce stress on themselves. Mm -hmm. But I found after after going through the experience for you know, years and years and years. I didn't get them all at the same time, right? I'd get two or three different tickets a year. Um, coming out the other end of it, you can't scare me with that. I don't even, I don't care. When Now when there's something that I'm doing that's examinable, it's like, whatever. I've, I've failed lots of exams before. You know what happens? You pay whatever research, retest fee and go back and write it again. In fact, a lot of times, um, when I'm when I've when I've been mentoring uh, non-destructive testing technicians, junior technicians, a lot of times what I'll say is that first time that you go in, if you go in and you're not like completely confident that this is working, then your entire strategy turns into a my job now is to remember the things that I wasn't sure about, walk out of this exam and write them down. So that when I get my failing mark, I know what to study. Everything that I wasn't sure about everything that you fail at is a learning opportunity and as soon as you change your mindset in the middle of this thing that you're failing at to like 
this is an opportunity. Okay, I got to start recording this. I got to start. I got to remember this. As soon as I'm done this, I got to stop. You know, go sit in the bathroom or the truck, whatever, and write all this stuff down so I can study it and hit it again next time. The stress doesn't have the opportunity to permeate uh, inside and like eat you up because you're 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 taking action. You are doing things in the in the midst of things falling apart. You are active. You are purposeful. You are driven. And um, if if that's how you approach failure or the stress of potential failure, um, then then you end up being successful. You end up being successful. And I find that repetition at a task uh, is really um, the only way to to get that. We can understand it sort of cerebrally beforehand. Like I can say this, and everybody watching could go, "Yeah, you know that makes sense." Blah 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 blah. But when you're in it, or or bodies and our minds have, you know, have ways of tricking us. You guys are both jujitsu practitioners and uh, I'm not, I have a base in judo from a long time ago, but there's, there's nothing like rolling against another human being and failing at it and failing at it and feeling like you're smashing up against the literal brick wall over and over and over to one, develop resilience, but two, come out the other side where it's no longer stressful if it doesn't go your way. That's no problem, right? This this will be over. I will figure out what happened that didn't work for me. And maybe I'll get a little nugget. And then the next time that I do this, it's going to be better. Mm-hmm. So I think both stress and repetition are positive and necessary. Yeah, no doubt. Sean, thoughts? Yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind is based on Ed's opening points and it was in respect to testing and how he'd done some really hard uh, exams. And I understand that, and I'm sure that they're extremely difficult at that level. So as I was thinking about what he was saying in testing, I quickly reflected back on my several careers and it's easy to establish what I'm about to say based on looking back at that stuff. So testing. In the military, you're tested pretty constantly, and you can start establishing who wants it bad enough. So to to become a winner, we'll call it, you got to want it real bad in some circumstances. But in other circumstances, if you want to be a quote-unquote winner, everyone can get to that position and be a winner. It all depends on the environment that you're in. But as the environment gets more and more stressful, there's less and less winners. And as stress intensifies to like a razor sharp edge, we'll call it, there's less and less winners. So through the very process of additional stress, you'll see few and fewer and fewer people make it to the finish line. And it's a process that grows you, that refines you that molds you through a arduous timeline, we'll call it a construct where if you put your, if you throw your name in the hat and own it, you'll see the other end, the finish line through a stressful and repetitive process that shapes you into something much better than you were the year before or a decade before. I've seen it too many times, stress and repetition working hand in hand to create a scalpel. Mm -hmm. I left the teams. I went straight to the Ontario Police College. Now I've got a whole bunch of other people standing in front of me 
day oneers who want to be a police officer through an intensive program. I'm the I'm I'm the we'll call it unarmed combat instructor. It's the technical term is use of force instructor. A little bit of shooting, a little bit of this takedowns, whatever low speed stuff. So having all of those individuals in front of me, they've got a lot of stress and rep repetition in front of them, and much like the army, policing is defined by how bad do you want it? Do you want to skate through the program? ducking stress and du ducking repetition and maybe make it to the finish line well in that organization it's easier to get to the finish line because the consequences aren't quite as sharp as they are like perhaps in jtf2 mm -hmm. and so seeing what i would call civilians at that time work through the process was a fascinating comparison to the military on how we'll call it day one civilians, were dealing with stress and repetition. Because they weren't used to that process, they really struggled in the process until they it was explained to them that you really got to get good at this in order to see the finish line. Moving from the Ontario Police College, I then became a computer system engineer and instructing it. In fact... <laughs> In fact, smoke bomb <laughs> takes fact, off. <laughs> I had to write this book, that big ass book, based on stress and repetition. So how it worked was when I started teaching computer system engineering, my students, I'm finally to the point, Ed, of exams, had to do six extremely difficult, high failure rate, proctored, national exams in order to become that uh, MCSE, that computer system engineer. So my students were constantly under stress and constantly under repetition in order to create a successful outcome on an extremely difficult exam or six difficult exams. My job as an instructor, we'll, we'll call it what it is, I put the boots to them. I put them under constant stress and constant repetition in order to when they got to that proctored exam, their success rate would be better. And my success rates as an instructor were so abnormally high that people started to pay attention to it. People started connecting with me across the interwebs from all around the world, from India, from the USA, from Europe, whatever, all over the place. Because at that time, no one was helping anyone else out on how to be successful when they had to go write those proctored exams. So through a process, I was given out lots of free advice on how to deal with stress and how to deal with repetition in order to have successful outcomes. I was getting so much questioning, so much connection, so much bombarding of how are you so successful and no one else's that a book got written. <laughs> In, in order to explain to everyone how to do it better. So stress and repetition are necessary to shape the diamond in order to become awesome. But there's these are things that have to be learned. And they have to be taught to you. You, you can go out there as an individual out into the woods and, and over a very arduous process, a lot of stress and a lot of repeated mistakes, you'll eventually learn how to survive in the bush. 
and it might take you a long time and you may not survive. But if you go find someone who has been there and done that, they can take your hand out into the bush and within a matter of two to three days, a lot of the stress and repetition is stripped out of the problem. They'll teach you the lessons with enough stress and enough repetition to maybe shave off three years of learning by yourself out there in the boonies wandering around bumping into trees and maybe dying. So stress and repetition is an individual learning path that if you know how to shape it, you can have successful outcomes. But if you don't know how to do that, start looking around on a 360 and find someone who can literally shape it for you. Where the resource burn rate, which is time and money, will be much more efficient and effective than going out there, renting a float plane, and just trying to figure it all out by yourself. That would be pretty crazy, renting a float plane <laughs> without any plan whatsoever. Oh, well, it like, happens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No problem. Uh, it reminds me of uh, when I did my TCCC course back in the day, my tactical combat casualty care course. Um, we were learning, one of the things we had learned was a needle decompression, right? And it's it's a two-week course. And we learned <laughs> some pretty invasive things that you have to do in order to stabilize a casualty in a tactical environment. Um, and my fr my buddy of mine who was in the military with me, he got out. Now he's a, a primary uh, critical care paramedic in Ottawa. Awesome dude. Uh, he I, I saw him again a little while ago and he was just like, do you remember when we got taught that? I was like, yeah, it was like three days worth of, you know, we're popping balloons through uh, you know, uh, a slab of ribs and stuff like that. And he goes, it took me two years of actual training and going through classes and tests and all these things over and over and over just to be qualified on doing a needle decompression in Canada versus like three days that they put us in under high stress. High right? stress, lots of repetitions, 100%. That's exactly it. There's lots of reps, lots of uh, lots of stress, and then they would just throw more stress on top. Like, oh, you're, you're pretty good. Okay, cool. Here's some more. You, oh, you think you got this down? Here's some more stress. We're going to add some more stuff. We're going to add explosions. We're going to add gunfire. We're going to add blah, 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 blah. And I was wondering, th this applies to pain as well. Because I was thinking about these other days that as your levels, as you've been under more stress and you've over time succeeded under that stress, um, even with multiple failures in there, so you learn. So let's say, you know, you've been on 10 hunting trips and you failed nine times out of 10. You finally get the uh, the 10th one succeeds and the 11th one succeeds because you're using all the lessons that you've been, oh, so on and so forth. But those hunting trips become easier because you now have the lessons behind you. You have less stress involved in the situation because you've now dealt with all the stress up to that point. And I was thinking about it as it kind of applies to pain as well in that as your threshold of pain, as your experience with pain and then overcoming it allows you to almost bypass it, but not quite. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's not a surprise yeah. anymore. When you've, when you've walked a path a bunch of times, the things on that path become expected. So, so like the curve to the left the sh with the sharp drop off that you, the first time you're like, whoa, I was not expecting that. 
the next time or two times after you do, you walk that path again, you're like, yeah, yeah, no, it's coming. Okay, there it is. Cool. We'll just, now we'll just deal with it. You, you get the opportunity to, instead of being like right up in whatever the thing is, you can step back from it. And if you could take a step back and have a bit of a wider view, then uh, the stress is smaller because so the truth is the stress is, is generally speaking, a small thing. We make it large for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right? The dragons, they are small. We yeah. are the ones who look and see the shadows and go, that's a dragon. And so, like, um, it's it, in the end, it's about it's about how we uh how we account with ourselves, no matter what the action is. Um, and and you know, by going through it over and over again, whatever it is. I mean, if you don't know how to cook, and I'm I know I'm speaking to perhaps. Yeah, you guys, I expect know how to cook. Um, uh, all, all three of us have at least had to put a bunch of things in a pot for a bunch of people over a fire and make it so that everyone's bellies were full at least once. Mm -hmm. um, but some some people don't grow up these days with that as part of you know part of their thing, and uh, that can be that can be a really stressful thing. It's a very simple thing. I mean, you're just what you're throwing some stuff in a thing, you're heating it up, and then you're putting it on plates or bowls, and everyone eats. It's no big deal. It's not a big deal, but the stress that a person creates for themselves from that simple task um, can can stop them in their tracks, literally. And that metaphor, um, as crude as it is, can apply to just about anything. And it, it can apply to the really crazy stuff, the really dynamic things. Uh, and then it can apply to just getting up out of bed. Like, you know, the alarm clock hits. It's whatever time in the morning. You know you're supposed to get up out of bed. And you just won't you know start are you nah. talking about me this morning because <laughs> but, 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 but you know it's it's that thing you're like i i just don't want to deal with it today yeah the more that you just the alarm clock hits you're like i don't want to as you're rolling out of bed but you start doing it then you know two three weeks down the down the way Man, that alarm clock isn't even hardly hitting, and you're rolling out of bed to stop it from going, and you're on your way, and you're doing things. Stress and repetition. Repetition is the pattern forming or the habit forming part of that. Mm -hmm. And as humans, if we have good habits that you know give us the successes that we want, and we can keep, you know, sort of building them up, then the stress just goes down, down, down. It's, it's not stressful things anymore. And obviously, because we're humans, um, we're always going to find some other stress to bring in and replace one that we deal with. So it's it's like a never ending process, right? The, the the old adage, life is not designed to get easier. It's supposed to get harder and we are supposed to grow better to deal with it right up on the point where life wins and we die yeah. right up until that point. We're supposed to get better and better and better because life gets harder and harder and harder. There's always new stresses. So the cycle doesn't end. It's not like you ever come out on top. The entire thing is a path that you have to walk. Yeah, sure. and uh, maybe you'll walk that path unknowingly. So let me give an example. And it's it's Yuri's point that had me thinking about it, the, the harder in training, the easier in fight, or the statement that I always used to tell all my troops is train in peace like it's war. Yeah. Bleed in peace so you don't have to bleed in war. And I've used that since 
I'll, I'll tell you when here in a sec, but I've used it since that time all the way through the rest of my life. Every athlete that I've worked with around the world has heard me say, train in peace as you would for war. They don't like me for it, but that's what happens. That's what they do so that they can be successful in the events that they've put themselves up against. Let me go back to where I learned this valuable lesson. Train in peace as if it is war. Before I joined the army, I was a young pup in Grand Cash, and um, I joined a first aid team, a competitive first aid team for about three years to compete provincially. And so what that had me doing as a kid was I learned all of the first aid stuff, the advanced first aid stuff and et cetera. And it came to a point where I'd be standing outside of a room, the door would open and I'd step in and it'd be yet another mining disaster because Grand Cash was a mining town. My dad was a, a pit boss, et cetera. So I'd walk into the room, scan, do all of the normal stuff and get on with the program, certain it all out night after night. I did a lot of those nights. And so what I didn't know was happening was I was becoming a first aider. Like I knew I was doing first aid, but I didn't realize what was happening as I was doing it until I was in basic training about halfway through. There's a whole pile of us in the back of a deuce and a half and our deuce and a half rolls. And three guys died from it. A bunch of guys got nuked, all kinds of injuries and et cetera. So <clears throat> when that truck rolled over and we came to a crashing uh, fatal halt, as I looked at the sky and was processing what just happened, every second after that was normalized by my training as I was a young kid in Grand Cash. No one had in the middle, we'd had zero first aid training up to that point, like less than zero. We had no first aid kits in the truck. There's nothing in there at all. We had, I, I was, I was treating guys by taking my t-shirt off and tearing strips out of it to try to stop bleeding, etc. So I worked on all three guys that died and I worked on them because I was one of two guys who was kind of ambulatory or who could move. And as I was working on each guy that died and I was working on each guy that was injured and all kinds of smashed up, I wasn't. I wasn't looking at it like, um, I can't handle this. What I was doing was relying on the autonomous offload that I had. And that's what stress and repetition is to me. When I repeat something long enough that I offload it into my autonomous bank is what I call it. So that when I get into a stressful situation, I just have to think done, done, done. And it's done. I don't have to worry about all of the details. I don't have to start doing a whole pile of checklists. I rely on my autonomous skill set that I built up through repetition. So when I was working on the guys that were dying, I was working on the guys who weren't dying. I was, I was processing the moment in the real time without a whole lot of planning or pre-thought or post-thought or anything. I was flow state relying on autonomous skill sets that I didn't even know I kind of had. And that's, you can, you can talk about first aid, and I bring that up because of Ed. I know that's a core of his business. The idea that autonomous offloading or repetition of skills will make you competent in the moment where there's high stress. I think about 
the videos that you put out, Ed, with the tourniquets and how you really, really push the message of a tourniquet's no good to you if you ain't drilling with it. And drilling with it ain't drilling with it unless you're drilling with it for reals. You got to put the herd on yourself in order to figure out what that feels like, in order to normalize it, in order to offload it as an autonomous skill set. So that can play out from first aid all the way to shooting, all the way to fishing, all the way to hunting, all the way to flying a plane, all the way to getting dressed in the morning. Repetition is a process of autonomizing your skill sets that you can then rely on in stressful moments. And we all know that the more you repeat a skill, the more a part of it you become and it becomes a part of you. And in the stressful moments, if, you, if your autonomous bank is that big, when it gets stressy, things collapse and compress that autonomous skill set almost a tunnel visioning of what you're capable of doing if you're not used to stress. But if you get used to stress with a good autonomous bank, it doesn't matter what happens around you. Nothing gets compressed. Nothing collapses. You have a stable foundation of repeatable, deliverable skills autonomously so that you can process the stress all around you and make better decisions just outside or on the peripheral of your autonomous skill set. It takes a long time, a lot of repetition, and a lot of stress, we'll call it inoculation, in order for you to be cool as a cucumber in the chaos. Again, I think you need to be able to drop your mic or you, maybe you should have like a spare mic or like a, just like a rubber one. <laughs> he does this all the time. Although he didn't, you didn't flick your, uh, your mic to the side. Like, you know, didn't. And so. I, and I have yet to say, um, <laughs> in this uh, podcast, I've been noticed, I've, I've been watching with that. I've been watching. So you've been doing really well. And I here's why, cause I've got the yellow sticky go. stuff right the next yellow to my stickies. camera. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the funny thing is, is that I will. The other part I want to that's talk called about, repetition, by the way, we don't I don't know if we have enough time to really get into this, but I do want to kind of touch on it was rust in that, you know, you have a skill set, you've drilled it, uh, you know, 100 times, 1000 times, million times, but then you don't use it for a very long time. And you, you know, you offload it, you don't really drill it. And you're working other stuff. And then when the time comes, like, let's say, Ed, you know, you haven't you haven't done judo in a while, right? If you needed to actually toss somebody i'm sure he could right because the skill set's there would it be tournament level <laughs> like exact oh, exacting no, kind no, of no, toss no, right no. but i'm sure you could toss somebody right right so but, I, I would, it, yeah go for it what it, you it, it it informs your action you you can be rusty on a skill and uh if you're willing like when the time comes to dive back into that skill like to just act then as soon as you've made a decision on a course of action, if you're off by some degrees, as you're acting, you can course correct and come to where you need to be. Mm -hmm. So you can get a little bit of that back. Like, like to your point about the judo. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to do judo uh, with a judoka now. That would not look very pretty. But it does inform me so that like, hey, if, if there's a physical situation that comes towards me, I'm not the guy who stands back and trades punches. I'm the guy who gets in and starts moving bodies. It informs my vector of, of how I'm going to deal with that. Um, and, and when it comes to the, to the medical things, 
it doesn't take like it, it doesn't take constant repetitions to be able to have this skill to a point where you can like hey i need to put on a tourniquet you know it's a good thing i've been doing it every single day for the last 500 days so i know how to do it today but like every once in a while whenever it pops up in your head like you know i should probably that that i should probably that's your little alarm bell in your background going hey we haven't done this skill in a while and, and whatever it is it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be anything medical it doesn't have to be tactical although I, I think it's funny that you know on on the internet people will advocate you know well, firearms are a perishable skill and you'll you'll you know you'll forget how to shoot if you don't shoot all the time and yet when it comes to you know practicing ripping a pressure bandage out of its wrapper remembering that there is in fact a second wrapper to pull it out and then self-applying it to yourself to you know stop a bleed or to somebody else that's something that people are like well you know i did that sometime in the past i'm good that'll be fine yeah um that only that really is only the the case if generally speaking you're the person who at every opportunity to like i haven't swung an axe in a while I could take a chainsaw to that thing, or I could just practice swinging an axe just to bring it back. If you're the person that does that, then you probably don't have to drill with everything all the time because your mindset's already set to like sort of rewind, grab that information and bring it to the forefront. But if you are a personality who like goes, takes some cool training, you know, learn some stuff and then it's like, cool, I'm just going to lock that up put that away and then you know someday in the future when i need it i'm just going to know which drawer to like pull it out of and then go ahead and use it that's where that i think that's where that rust um effect comes in yeah absolutely sean any thoughts on rust yeah for something to get rusty you've got to actually own it mm. and nothing gets rusty if you don't have it so if you want to skill if you want to learn how to patch yourself up if you if you cut your leg off with a chainsaw that's not the time to try to figure out how to solve that problem. How that problem should have been <laughs> solved in your head a long time ago. And so the idea being that if you don't have that skill to deal with that moment, there's nothing to be rusty because you never did anything about it in the years prior. And I will say this, that all skills will get rusty, but I'd rather you go out and get a skill and let it rust, then you not get a skill. Yeah. So go get a skill. And if you got to put it in a shelf behind you and not touch it for a couple of years, better that than not. And it's for everyone to figure out the right ratio, the right balance, the right perspective, the right intensity of effort for each thing that's important to them. It's more important that you revisit your prioritizations academically. You, you keep rejigging it. You keep rethinking about what is important this month or this week or this day or this year. You, it's Life's choices are not static. It should require prioritization of effort each month to make sure that you're on point and to maybe even consider that skill that I had from a couple of years ago that for sure is rusty, do I need to pull that out of the drawer or do I need to take a shower? You should probably take a shower if you haven't taken a shower in a few days. So get all of your priorities lined up to make sure that you're good to go to even step towards that skill that you haven't touched for two weeks, two months, two years, whatever the case is. So rust, everything rusts, but make sure that you're not 
focusing on keeping everything shiny all the time and letting everything rust that's important or inversely focusing on getting all the rust off of the things that maybe aren't even important right now while letting all of the stuff that needs to be shined like a freaking shower make sure you've got your priorities right is what i'm saying and yeah. always consider that you can readjust your priorities on the regular there's a uh, there's a great line that i will finish up with but it is no combat ready unit ever passed an inspection right yeah. so if you spend all your time shining up all your skills so that you can be on inspection and they show you that oh look at what i can do right you're, you won't have the skill sets necessary in order to do the job um and i heard i remember this from a long time ago uh it was actually a it was a commercial i was talking about the when cell phones the uh started going from actual pads to the screens and they were like make sure that when you're practicing or that uh when you have this new type of phone that you do practice this is that you dial you hit 911 send in case of an emergency because they were finding that a lot of people with the new phones they would hit 911 and they would immediately go to like have the call connect versus actually having to hit the send button and because in those stressful moments you're not thinking about the fact that you need to hit send on your cell phone all you're trying to do is hit 911 because that's what we used to do when we were kids right or that's what we were told to do when we were kids so that's part and parcel of it is that a is your training correct for what the situation what you have on hand and b is it up to snuff it's always good and through this i'm remembering that i haven't touched my tourniquet in a while and i should probably pull it out and just wrap it on and yep. tighten her up um i have not done that in a while well ed will help walk you through the suffrage of that because he's got a few videos that should remind you <laughs> yes and uh I, I i still remember the amount of pain that I should be feeling, and then to do another turn and a half. Yep. One one twist yeah. past bad words in training or until the bleeding stops. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll tell you this, that uh, Ed does such a good job of reminding everyone on the interwebs the importance of what he just said, that whenever I think of tourniquets, I think of Ed, straight up. It's because he's pushing the message hard enough that it's autonomously embedded in my mind so if and when a moment occurs where i need to apply a tourniquet the autonomous skill will be deployed in the moment and i'll bet you that as i'm deploying it i'll be thinking about ed's name and that's the way things should be man i mean it doesn't matter where you get your influences from as long as they're the right influences yeah and it doesn't matter what drives you so long as you're being driven towards doing good. And so whatever you're facing in the moment, the freak show, the chaos, the stress, and all of that stuff, whatever it is that you're right up against it, make sure that you can draw down on all of the good lessons that you've learned in the past and autonomously deploy them. Yeah. I, uh, I, unfortunately, I won't be thinking of Ed if I ever need to put a tourniquet on. I have a different uh, core memory that click, clicks in because I was taught by a guy named Captain. Now, well, actually, probably Colonel now, but uh, Captain Payne at the time. <laughs> and he was an M oh, that, and he, that's a winning that name right beautiful. there. He was an MD as well. He was Captain Payne MD. Perfect. It was oh, fantastic. Outstanding. 
So I that's who I think of anytime I do medical yeah, stuff. Don't go changing that. Campaign. And then the funny thing is, this is a side story, but when I did my research for my, a recertification for TCCC, he was a major, so he became major pain. And I was like, that's even better. Even better. I <laughs> just so that's who I think of. But Ed, you may have just been replaced, actually. Sorry, man. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, like lofty, lofty shoes to film. I ain't, yeah. I ain't touching that. That's right. uh he he was awesome. He taught us really great stuff. But um, you know. The, the key thing I think in all of this is that stress is actually useful and repetition is how we manage it. And I think that, uh, you know, the more stress and the more repetition you can get under stress, the better you'll be at whatever it is skill you're, uh, you're trying to produce. So, um, if you guys want to know more, make sure that you hit the like subscribe to the channel, make sure you hit the notification bell so that you can be apprised of all the stuff that we do it'll help you learn it'll help you build it'll help you grow here on the collective we'll see you all tomorrow chimo chimo